0: And if you're keeping track, you're thinking, wait a second, that's not where we're supposed to be. We will get to Exodus 20 again in just a moment. I see a number of folks that are guests with us this morning. We're really glad that you're here. I'll add my welcome and hello to Matt's and Will's as well. We're glad that you're here. A lot of fun things going on this time of year, FFF, PPP, those sorts of things. Uh, Those of you who are part of the church, you know exactly what I mean by that. Um, I do want to say thanks to several people who've been doing some work just around here and and the facilities uh, lately. So if you were to go out those double doors, hang your right, and then go down the hallway, and then on your right, there were two rooms where there is now one big room. And so thanks to Matt Peavy for knocking out a wall and making two small rooms into one big room for our teens to use. And then Mr. Joe Perkins came and over the course of the last week painted those rooms. And so if you don't normally make it back in there, you may before you leave this morning. You may want to sneak down the hallway and check that out, and then thanks to Jordan, Moore, uh, If you go upstairs up into the children's uh, nursery area, she painted this really super cool mural uh, on the walls up there, uh, and so she really beautified the uh, the children's ministry area up there. And so before you leave this morning, if you want a, a tour, um, you know grab grab Jordan, uh, and she'll take you on a tour of the building uh, to see some of the stuff that's been going on around here. So that's really that's exciting. And then as many of you know. You've, you saw, uh, we communicated over Facebook here uh, this last week, but our brother Harold Wilkinson passed away last Sunday. And so his earthly race has been run and he, has, he is done. Um, I, I had the chance to visit with him a couple times uh, over the last few months before he moved up to Stratford. And um, uh, it, it is, it's, a, it's a joy to know that he is done with the work uh, of uh, his life here on earth and, uh, and is with his Savior now. And so we, uh, we hate having him gone, but we rejoice to know um, that he is with his Lord and Savior. And there was a memorial service for him in Stratford uh, just on Friday afternoon. And uh, Will Perkins and I were able to run up there uh, to be at that. And James and Janet were up there as well. So um, anyway, I want to remember uh, him this morning. And then, Miss Debbie, we are praying for you and your family as uh, your dad is walking through these, um, what is probably the last days, and so we'll remember him in prayer as well. Okay? This morning, Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to jump into Exodus chapter 32 here in just a moment. Let me ask you a question. What comes to your mind when I say the word God? When I say the word God, what comes... What comes to your mind? One famous pastor, A.W. Tozer, said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most, the most important, and I, I actually think I agree with him. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say what is the most important thing. I mean, that's a pretty superlative declaration, right, to say that this is the most important thing. But Tozer said that the most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. And I've heard it illustrated this way, that your brain is kind of like a filing cabinet, right? And, and every, everything in your life uh, is a file folder with you know, that topic labeled across the top. Uh, I, I heard a pastor say years ago that a filing cabinet, a real one, a, a physical filing cabinet, is a way for you to lose things in alphabetical order, I've always thought that's a fantastic way. All the A things in my life are lost in those files, and the B things are lost in those files. Your brain is—if you think of it as a a series of file, a filing cabinet with file folders in it—what's in your God folder? Is there—is there very much in in that folder? One of the things that Will was encouraging us with this morning is the importance of, of being in Sunday school. You know, one of the reasons that we offer Sunday school to every age group in here is because we're actually wanting to take your God folder and fill it full of good stuff. Right? So if you're like, I don't have much in my God folder, well, I have a suggestion to make. There's a way for you to get more in your God folder, and that's to come and let us pack it full of good things and good truth. What we think about when, uh, what comes into our minds, said Tozer, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So, therefore, what we think about God is truly of life and death importance. It is literally, critically, I'm using the word critical on purpose, it is critically, it is life and death important what you think about when you think about God. And it's important that we. Let God tell us who he is, and that we don't shape a God according to our own sensibilities of what God should be like, what we wish God were like. When when we do that, whether we know it or not, we often make a God that's kind of the perfected version of ourselves. You know what I mean? Like we would take kind of what we like and what we are like and the things that we think are important and then we try to imagine God like a sinless version of the best version of us. That's not how you get God. Often people will use phrases like this. Well, my God is is this. God is this to me. I understand God this way. Friends, when, when we shape God that way, we're actually violating the second instruction that God gives to His people. God is. And His Word is where we find out about Him. And we, like the Israelites, are regularly trying to fashion a God into our limited conceptions of who He is. In Exodus 32, verses 1 through 8, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. right? Realize, we've, we've been preaching through the book of Exodus and we're in chapter 20. I'm jumping 12 chapters ahead. There's a whole lot of law that's been given. When they saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us a God who shall go before us. As for this Moses, I love the way they refer to it. You know, this, oh, you mean the guy who God has used to deliver you out of Egypt and the guy that God has used to deliver water from? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to whom? What does it say? The Lord. Tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf. And have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now we read this passage, and we would expect that in light of this passage, God would then come to the people of Israel and say to them, No, what you did was wrong. Don't create any images, don't make any idols, don't graven, don't, don't craft for yourselves. Uh, idols. But what has actually happened is Israel has made themselves a calf after God had given to them this commandment. Here's the main point that I want us to see together this morning. God cares how we worship him. God cares how we worship him. How we worship God is evidence of who we think he is. God cares how we worship Him. Last week's sermon outline uh, followed uh, three general points. It was the, the first instruction in God, and then the second instruction in you, and then the third instruction in Christ. And I have a feeling that every single one of these 10 words that we're going to look at in Exodus chapter 20 are going to follow this same exact outline. We're, the first thing we're going to do is see what does the command teach us in relation to God? Then, secondly, what does the command teach us in relation to ourselves? And then, thirdly, what does the command teach us in relation to Jesus Christ? Point number one this morning, and I will often refer to these either as the 10 words or the, the 10 instructions, in part to kind of shake us out of uh, our. Uh, our, our um, Slightly misunderstood way of conceiving of these 10 words. We often just think of them as these 10 abstract rules that God, these commands that God gives to kind of keep everybody in check instead of these 10 instructions for human flourishing. First of all, let's look this morning at the second instruction that God gives to his people, the second word that God gives to his people. Exodus chapter 20. Let me read verses 4 through 6. to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Father, as we look into your word this morning, please help us to understand what you have for us, to, to feel the conviction where we have sinned against you in violating this second instruction. And we, may we be uh, encouraged and comforted with ways that we can keep it better for our flourishing, for our good, and for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. As we look at this second instruction, the first thing that we need to understand about it is just see very clearly that God is making a very clear point to his people here. He's saying, I don't want you to make physical representations of me for the purpose of worship. Again, that's, that's clear in these passages. Don't, don't carve, don't make an image, don't make a likeness that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth and then don't bow down to them or serve them because i'm a jealous god god in giving the israelites this instruction he's once again differentiating them from all of the pagan believers around them right because what what did the others the people in egypt and the people in the land of canaan where they were going they were they were people with many different gods they were polytheists and they would make for themselves physical representations of the god that they worshipped and God was telling the people of Israel, once again, you're not going to be like all the other people around you. The false gods that the people uh, worshipped around the Israelites, they, they were represented by idols. And as you read through and as you understand um, culture and history... Um, these people when they would make an idol. Let's say that they would take a tree and they would carve an idol to the god that they worshipped. Or they would take a stone and they would carve out of that. uh, Or take gold and fabricate um, an image of the god that they were worshipping. They understood like you and I that they were taking a piece of wood that was not a god. And making an image out of it. They were taking a piece of rock. They were taking some gold that was not god. And they were making an image out of it. And they understood, just like you and I did, that that thing was stone or wood or gold. But what they would do, they would create this idol, and then they would perform a religious incantation over this physical thing. And that physical thing now became a way for them to access their God. It was like a one-way radio, not a two-way radio. I have this one-way radio in my house, and I can access my the real deity, through this image, through this idol that is here in my home. Would the idol speak to them? No. Would the idol do anything for them? The idol didn't do anything for them. But they would create this thing and have it, uh, and they would use it in the worship of their their God. And God, the one true God, is saying, I'm not going to let you do that with me. Israel creates an idol in Exodus chapter 32. And the idol that they create in Exodus chapter 32, we're going to look at it a little bit more here in just a second, but that idol, brothers and sisters, do you know that they weren't just being random in what they were doing, what they were creating? I think sometimes we think that Israel gets there uh, and they're waiting for Moses to come back down and they say, you know what, Moses isn't coming back and that God that delivered us, fooey on him, let's come up with something else. Let's make a calf and we will become the people who follow calves. The calf God. The, the calf God is the God that we're going to, to follow. That's, that's, not, that's not what... That's not what Israel is doing. We're going to talk about exactly what is Israel doing here. But the first thing God is telling them here in Exodus chapter twenty, verse four is, "Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't make a, a physical, visual representation in order to use uh, in worship." What what Israel was doing, brothers and sisters, and again, I'm going to talk about more about it more here in just a second. But they were making a physical representation of the one true God. They hadn't forsaken Yahweh. They wanted to physically represent him in the form of a calf. Right? In Exodus chapter 32, after they make the calf, um, uh, Aaron says, Tomorrow we will have a festival unto Yahweh, unto the Lord. They're saying, We're going to use this image, this idol, in the worship of the one true God. They weren't worshiping a different God. They were trying to worship the one true God in the wrong way. J.I. Packer, in his excellent book, Knowing God, says this, that this command means that we are not to make use of visual or pictorial representations of the triune God or of any person of the Trinity for the purposes of Christian worship. The commandment thus deals not with the object of our worship, but with the manner of it. What it tells us is that statues and pictures of the one whom we are to worship are not to be used as an aid to worshiping him. One, one old theologian says this, A true image of God is not to be found in all the world, and hence... His glory is defiled, and his truth corrupted by the lie, whenever he is set before our eyes in a visible form. What what do I mean by that? What is what is that's John Calvin I'm quoting there. What, what does that have to do with what we're talking about here this morning? I think I would uh, I would illustrate it like this: for you to bring the invisible God into any kind of visible form immediately lies. About who the one true God is, it's immediately false. There is no physical representation of the one true God that gives an accurate understanding of who the one true God is. So the one true God is saying to His people, "Don't illustrate Me visibly, because immediately here's what happens when when we make a false God. When, excuse me, when we make an idol of the one true God." It is an inaccurate representation of him, and therefore it is a false God. This second instruction is not not commanding the people of God not to worship other gods. That's already been taken care of in the first instruction. This second instruction is an instruction on how to worship the one true God. He's already said, don't have other gods. So, so this isn't a debate about whether or not other, we can have other idols to Baal and to Ashtaroth and to you know, Zeus or whoever you know, the other false gods are. Jen Wilkin, in her excellent book, Ten Rules to Live By, Ten Words to Live By, rather, she writes the following in comment on the idol that Israel made. Okay, so this calf, this calf, not a bull, a calf, it is small. But God is immense. The calf is inanimate. But God is a spirit. It is location bound. But God is everywhere, fully present. This calf is created, but God is uncreated. This calf is new, but God is eternal. This calf is impotent, but God is omnipotent. This calf is destructible, but God is indestructible. This calf is of minor value, made of solid gold. It's of minor value. But God is of infinite value. This calf is blind and deaf and mute, but God sees and hears and speaks. Do you see how this physical representation of God is telling lie after lie after lie about who God is? Brothers and sisters, the people of Israel, when they made this golden calf, They weren't replacing the one true God of Israel. They were making him accessible. That might be the most important thing I say all morning, and I hope I can communicate the significance of it. They weren't replacing Yahweh. They were making him safe and accessible. A bull, okay, if I told you that I've wrestled a bull to the ground, you would be like, no, that's probably not true probably haven't done that. But I have. I promise you I have. And Will Perkins would give testimony to the fact that I've done it. Now, when I wrestled him to the ground, he was maybe two weeks old. And after I was done wrestling him to the ground, he was no longer a bull. Someone performed a surgical procedure and the calf that was a bull was no longer a bull. And you're like, oh, yeah, you helped with the branding and you wrestled the calf to the ground. Why why is it not accurate for me to say I've wrestled a bull to the ground? well because a 2000 pound animal with horns and all it wants to do is destroy me it's obvious like that 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 creature is in no way accessible by by me but a calf a calf is small and a calf is safe and a calf is still a bull at least potentially They weren't replacing God, brothers and sisters. They were making him accessible. We can go to this physical thing, and he's right here, and he's safe, and we can kind of worship God through this thing. Like everybody else that we know, when they worship their gods, they worship him through these one-way radios called idols, and we're going to make one like that. They weren't replacing him. They were making him accessible. Again, Jen Wilkins says, when Aaron conceives Of Yahweh in his own imagining, he produces a non-threatening, approachable version of the principal gods of the surrounding pagans. Every part of that statement is full of thought. When Aaron conceives of a Yahweh of his own imagining, he produces a non-threatening, approachable version of the principal gods of the surrounding pagans. Is this what we do? Do we look to other things to access what we want from God? Money, sports. We, we have all sorts of other safe, approachable things that we want to access the one true God through. And we see that God wants, he says, don't make, don't make these lies, these graven images about me. And then it goes on to, and it tells us why. Uh, the second part of verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We see that God is jealous. We're still under point number one. What does this second word tell us about God? And we learn that God is a jealous God. And and if you were uh, asking someone um, about a new friend and you said, well, tell me about that person. And they said, well, they're very jealous. Immediately, you would have like a negative connotation, right? We would think uh, that, that's a problem. There's something wrong if that's the first way that you're describing someone else, that you're describing them as jealous. And this obviously isn't the only thing that we know about God from the Scriptures. But when, when Yahweh tells His people, don't make idols of me, don't make these false representations of me, the reason He gives is because I'm a jealous God. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 And three, say this, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. When we're fashioning a safe, approachable God that we kind of uh, want to be the best version of ourselves, right, those are the kinds of passages that we just kind of conveniently leave off. God is love. God's a gentle shepherd, right? He's got long brown hair and blue eyes, and he sits in a white robe, and he pets sheep. That's, that's God. He's safe and approachable. We'll put a picture of that on our wall at home, which, which could be in violation of this very word. He's a jealous God. Brothers and sisters, we know that there is a perfected version of jealousy. The the jealous love of a spouse over his or her spouse. We would expect that a good wife would not be okay with the unfaithfulness of her husband. She would be a good and faithful wife if she jealously guards the love relationship that she has with her husband and a husband with a wife. That kind of jealousy is that bad? No, 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 that's good. And that's the kind of jealous love that God has for his people and for his own glory. I don't want you to make these idols because if you make an idol, it's going to be a false god and you're going to worship me wrongly. God has his glory and our good um, in giving us this second instruction. We see that he doesn't want physical representations of him made. We see that he is jealous. We see that he is just. Here we get into the second part of verse 5 and the first part of verse 6. The last part of verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Read that again and pay careful attention. This is a passage of Scripture that is often very misunderstood. I want to make sure that we get our our minds around this. This is going to answer, I think, a lot of questions for some of you who maybe uh, have pasts that continue to haunt you or plague you. It says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Does this mean that children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, let's say third and fourth generation, and great-great-grandchildren, does it mean that they are punished for the sins of their great great great? grandfathers. I don't remember how many I got lost in the the greatness. Well, let me give you the very quick, easy, and succinct answer, and then tell you why. The answer to that question is no. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren are not punished for the sins of their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers. And in order to make that perfectly clear ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 says this the soul who sins shall die the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself And if you read this passage carefully, look at the end of verse 5, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What's being described here is a generation after a generation after a generation of those who do hate God. Grandpa hated God. Dad hated God. I hate God. My children hate God. And God says, I will visit the iniquity of generation after generation after ge- I'll be just in this generation, and I'll be just to this generation, and I'll be just in dealing with this generation, and I'll be just in dealing with this generation. Each generation is responsible for their own sin. Each generation is, is responsible for their own hatred. And in this passage, it's clear that hatred is being equivale- uh I just made up a new word. Um... This hatred is equivalent with those who are not keeping the instructions of God. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That principle is obviously true here in the Old Testament as well. If you love me, keep my instructions. And those who ignore the instructions of God and, and worship other gods or, or create images of the one true God, they're disobeying the commands of God and thereby proving their hatred for God. Each generation is responsible one Bible version. Um, uh, are, is it says this in Exodus chapter twenty, verse verse five and following. Don't bow down to idols and don't serve them because I am God, your God, and I'm a most jealous God, punishing the children for any sins their parents pass on to them. I like that. I, th- I think that's a faithful way of understanding this passage. Um. Punishing the children for any sins their parents pass on to them, to the third and, yes, even to the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, be aware that we do hand things down generation to generation. So you can suffer the consequences of someone else's sin. Can you suffer the consequences of the sins of your father and mother? Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to be careful in here because I know that I can bring up uh, a lot of hurt and, and history, and I, I don't want to do that. But, but some of you, your, your story is literally suffering at the hand of your father and mother. And so you might think, uh, uh, is that what this passage is talking about? No, it's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about you will be punished for your own hatred of God, or you will be rewarded with mercy for your love for God. So, so yes, you can still suffer the consequences of other people's sins. And, and you will be shaped. Another, another thing that is true, you will be shaped by your own upbringing. You do a lot of what you do because your parents did things the way they did them. I'm old enough now we're on a regular basis. I just think that's exactly what my dad would have done. That's exactly the way my dad would have said that. That's exact I'm holding my hand the exact same way that my dad holds his hand. I'm I've crossed my legs, I've interacted with my kids, I made a joke, whatever. Like you see your parents in you, right? And so Often the good things that your parents, well, I was going to say, often the bad things your parents do, you see those things in yourself. And then on occasion, you might find a good thing that your parents did that finds its way into you as well. You will be shaped by the upbringing that you have. And so if your parents hate God, there's a better than likely chance that you too will hate God. And that your children will hate God. And I'm using hate God strongly here, but simply to disobey God's commands. If you disobey God's commands, your children will very likely disobey God's commands. And their children will very likely disobey God's commands. I, I know a lot of you might not like your parents or the way they did things, but I absolutely assure you that you are far more like them than even you would want to admit. There, there, are, there are plenty of people, right? And I'm sure if you've met my parents, you, this, you would have this experience as well. There, there have been many people um, who when I, I meet their parents, I thought, that explains it. I, I get them now. I totally understand them. I get it. I see why they're the way they are. I get their personality, their insecurities, their foibles, their whatever, right? Got it. That makes sense. Now, We can suffer the consequences of our parents' sin, and we can be shaped, we are shaped by the upbringing that we have. But brothers and sisters, God will not punish you or anyone for the sins of other people. The sins of other people can bring difficulty and challenges into our life. The sins of other people hung Christ on the cross. The sins of Joseph's brothers landed him in prison. God will not punish you for the sins of other people. God will deal justly, with those who disobey his command, regardless of what generation they're in. That's a really sobering and heavy thing to read, isn't it? To the third and fourth generation. But what God is getting ready to do in this passage is going to say, my justice is always just and right, but I'm doing something in the earth that's so much bigger My mercy is so much larger. Look in verse six. But showing steadfast love to thousands, and that word thousands would be better read, thousands of generations. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God is saying, look, for three or four generations, like, I, I going, I'm going to bring my justice. I'm going to visit the, the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me. But to those who love me, thousands of generations. The point he's making is, for those who love him, he's going to have mercy for you For eternity. For eternity. Forever and ever, My, hit, um, where grace abounds, or, no, where sin abounds, what does much more abound? Grace much more super abounds. God's making that point here in Exodus chapter twenty, verse six, where, where sin abounds, grace does much much more abound. We're learning about the mercy, the hesed, the steadfast love of God in the Old Testament. Who to thunk? Right here. In the Gospel of Exodus. So we learn that God says, No physical representations of me to be used in worship. I am jealous, I am just, but I am also merciful. These are some of the things that we learn about God in this second instruction. What, point number two, what does the second instruction teach us about us? So point number two is the second instruction, the second word and us. Again, remember, that this instruction was originally given to the nation of Israel. And remember what we read in Exodus 32. This instruction convicts us. This instruction convicts us because we, we do make idols. We make them physically and we make them mentally. There's two ways I think we can be guilty of violating this, this word. Many in this world have... Idols to false gods. But again, that isn't what is being forbidden in this command. The command not to make images is not primarily a command not to worship other gods. That was forbidden in the first instruction. This word is forbidding idols of the one true God. So when you make an idol of the one true God, you make a false god. Even in your most pure and, des- and holy and d- devout attempt to make an idol of God and to use it in your form of worship. To have a painting, to have an image, to have a, something crafted is a false God. We must be careful not to be guilty of this in our worship. This word would forbid us from using images as aids to worship. So if you have a picture of Jesus hanging on your uh, in your house and when you pray you look at that picture and you you use that picture to warm your brothers and sisters this command is forbidding that. that that that's not okay that's that's using an image of the one true god to be used in worship and and even though you might think yeah but it helps me so much i'm just telling you that that's being forbidden because that's not that's not an accurate representation of the one true God. Don't use images as aids to prayer or worship. Don't look to a gift of God, at any kind of gift of God, as an idol, as Him in total. This is an instruction to worship the one true God the right way. So we're guilty of violating the principle of the second instruction when we worship a misrepresentation of God. A God, I said earlier, I've talked about what comes to your mind when you think about God, a God of our own making, a God who is not a God defined by the Bible. So this is why when we imagine God to be a certain way and we think, well, God is probably like this, even in our thinking, we can be guilty of violating this second instruction. Even if we don't have a physical thing in front of us, I think we can be guilty of violating the second instruction when we have an image, a thought, an idea of God that is not just fully and robustly formed through, through the Word of God. A God who gives us health and wealth and prosperity and that's the God that we have imagined is not the God of the Bible. A God who condones sin is not the God of the Bible. This instruction instructs us. Not only does it convict us, but it also instructs us. Again, Dr. Packer helps us by telling us positively what this command means. Positively, the command is a summons to us to recognize that God, the Creator, is transcendent. He's mysterious and inscrutable, beyond the range of any imagining or philosophical guesswork of which we are capable. And hence, a summons to us to humble ourselves, to listen and learn of Him, and to let Him teach us what He is like and how we should think of Him. Thus, it appears that the positive force of the second commandment is that it compels us to take our thoughts of God from his own holy word and from no other source whatsoever. So how do, we, how do we work to not violate the second command? How do we keep this second instruction? Again, in the words of Packer, it compels us to take our thoughts of God from His own holy word and from no other source whatsoever. Again, brothers and sisters, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. And the only way we know the God of the Bible is through the Bible. God God is really capable. He's really creative. He could have given us any Form, fashion—he could have given us anything that he would have wanted us to have in order to worship him well. He could have very easily given us some kind of physical object. He could have included a DVD ROM in the back. You remember DVDs when you buy a book, and now everything's just streams online, right? He could have had a YouTube channel in which he live streamed the stuff that he would want us to know in order for us to worship him well. In his wisdom, he has given us a book. He has given us words. And you, you will pull down the false images of God in your heart and mind and erect the the, worship, uh, the, the truths worthy of worshiping the one true God as you know this book well. When, when you open the file cabinet of your mind and f- sort through the letters and get to, let's, we'll go with a Y for Yahweh okay and you, you get to the file folder on god you need to be able you you should you should pull this book up and out of it and my friends you need to know this book you will worship your god well when you know this book do you ever feel like ah, like i don't feel worshipy i don't i don't love god the way that i think i should love god it's pro- it's not that you it may be that you know him in salvation, that you really are a born-again believer, but you, you don't know him well. I used this illustration in my junior high Bible class the other day. Do you remember where I'm going with this? So I'm going to ask, how many of you love Paul Radford? Raise your hand in this room if you love Paul Radford. There should be a few hands raised. Okay, the front row. Why would the front row... Love Paul Radford. Okay, this is class interaction time. Why, do my fam- Why does my family love Paul Radford? Because they know him. Audrey, you are a theologian and a scholar. Because they know him. So, Paul Radford is to my children, Uncle Paul, Angie's brother in law. Um, Paul's one of the coolest people I know, and I'm like, I know a lot of really cool people. Paul is like, he always gets like the favorite uncle status when we're all together as a family. All the kids are like hanging out with Uncle Paul. He's just the coolest guy. My family love Paul Radford because they know Paul Radford. And you know what? It's okay that you don't love him. You don't know him. The more that you know about Paul Radford, the more that you're going to like him. Let me tell you a few things about Paul Radford. Paul Radford is six foot three, and he's probably 300 pounds. He is a big dude. And he's not fat. He competes in um, the Highland Games, the Scottish Highland Game strongman competition. He went to Scotland, wore the dress, and threw logs. He's he's really strong. He has a PhD in communications. He teaches, he teaches on the collegiate level. Um, uncle Paul can cook probably better than anyone in that side of the family. He's incredible. Um, he grows uh, he he grow uh, he has these like prized tomatoes that he grows in his backyard. Like uncle like it's and I'm just telling you like not only did all the nieces and nephews think that Uncle Paul is the coolest uncle, but like kind of all the rest of us are like yeah he he actually is the coolest guy in the room right now. Uncle Paul, I, I could keep telling you about Uncle Paul. And the more that you would learn about Uncle Paul, you would go, man, like he really is a great guy. He's calm. He's quiet. He has this, like, this soothing effect on people. Um, you could verify all of this with, with Angie. This is, this is true. If you spent time with him, the more time you spent with him, the more you'd like him. He's a great guy. But you don't know him. You've never spent time with him. The only way that you would come to love him would be How? to know him, to spend time with him, to have a personal relationship with him. Do you, do you understand where I'm going? I mean, I hope the illustration is so abundantly obvious. Do you want to grow in your affections for God? Then spend time with him. And I know that the Bible seems like this big, heavy, impenetrable book, right? I, I just got finished reading through Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel in my personal Bible reading over the last couple of weeks. I, I mean, I'll be honest. I was kind of like, whoa, man, I was glad to get through. This morning I got into Daniel, right? Daniel and the lion's den. Finally, something fun. I understand what's going on. And you get to the second half of Daniel, and then you're like, okay, I lo- I'm lost again. I don't understand all of these end time vision things, right? Some, There are parts of the Bible that are harder to understand than others. But that doesn't mean the whole book is impossible to understand. And even the thicker parts can be understood and do bring great glory to God. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to worship the one true God in the right way, you, you will be better and better able. You will become more and more capable of loving Him and worshiping, wor, wor, worshiping Him rightly as you know Him through His Word. There's no other way for me to like, make that happen in you. There's, there's no other way for that to happen. There, there's, there's no other way for you to become a wise, informed worshiper of God than for you to know Him through the Word. You can do that in Sunday school. You can do that in Sunday morning worship. You can get your kids involved in Wednesday night Kid Zone. You can come to PPPs and FFFs and those sorts of things, right? Like, there are ways for you to get better and to grow in your knowledge and love of God, but it will not just happen um, without being rightly informed through the Word. So let the Word of God instruct us. God has given us His Word. Do you know it? Thirdly, this second commandment, this second instruction in Christ. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. In the second instruction, God says, Make no images of me. Right? Don't make idols. Don't craft. Don't make any graven image of me. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we're going to find a really interesting point that we have to make sure we correlate with what God is giving to his people here. In Exodus chapter 20, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, Then God said, let us make man in our, what? So God's telling you, don't make an image of me in part because in Genesis chapter 1, I've made an image of me. I've already made an image of me. I've made an image of me, and I put it on the earth. And what did God ask of Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply? He was telling them, fill the earth with images of me. I'm making you in my image, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And, And I always say it takes three people to make a baby, right? a man, a woman, and God. So God is going to use a man and a woman to make these images of himself to cover the earth with the image of God. And they were, so Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, male and female, he created them. And they were supposed to multiply and fill the earth with the image, with image bearers of God. But what happened even before those first image bearers could reproduce and make more image bearers? The fall, Adam and Eve sinned, and they continued making image bearers. All of us continue to bear the image of God, though we are fallen and though we are sinful. Adam and Eve were image bearers. You and I are image bearers. And though we still bear the image of our Creator, it is fallen. We are fallen, and we are imperfect. But then God, in His wisdom, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who is called the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ comes along as the perfect image, the image that Adam and Eve were supposed to be but failed to be, the image that you and I were supposed to be but failed to be. God sends his son Jesus as the perfect image of God. and For 33 years, Jesus himself lives being the perfect image of God here on earth. He's honoring his father and mother. He has no other gods before him. He doesn't use any idols to worship. He doesn't take the name of the Lord uh, in vain, he remembers the Sabbath day and he keeps it holy. He honors his father and mother. He doesn't kill. He doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't steal. He—that's um, number nine. He—he uh, he doesn't lie. He doesn't bear false witness, and he doesn't covet. He keeps all of the laws of God perfectly. Jesus comes along. He fulfills all the commands of God. He fulfills even the second commandment by being the perfect image of God. And he comes and he is the perfect image of God so that we can look to him and find salvation for our violation of creating images of God. I hope that doesn't sound convoluted. Jesus comes and he is the perfect fulfillment. He keeps the second commandment for those of us who break the second commandment. Maybe that's the easiest way to say it. He fulfills the second word for those of us who break the second word. And then he ensures that we too can keep it when we turn from our sin and put faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone and we fix our eyes on the perfect image of God in Christ Jesus without making physical representations of it to aid us in worship, which would therefore lead us into false worship. We worship the one true God through Jesus Christ. And again... In Jen Wilkins' wise words, she encourages us with this. Stop worshiping the image of God diminished in an idol and start becoming the image of God restored. In Christ, we can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can start becoming the image of God restored, Jesus Christ. The second commandment, the second word in Christ shows us that Christ fulfills it and that Christ ensures us that we can keep it. I'd invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And in just a, just a moment, I'm going to turn uh, the service over to Pastor Matt, who will come and uh, lead us in the Lord's Supper, taking the Lord's Supper. If you're here this morning and you've either been worshiping false gods or you have been worshiping the one true God the right way, Repent. Turn from your sin. If you need salvation, repent of your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the gospel. He is the good news that we need in our bad news, as Will mentioned earlier. If you know Christ is your Savior in some way, sh- shape, or form, you've been violating this second word. And this convicts you this morning. And you have ways in which you've been worshiping the one true God, but you've been doing it in the wrong way. It hasn't been informed fully by Scripture then repent and ask God to help you to worship the one true God the right way through the instruction of His Word. We're going here in just a moment to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to remember that Jesus Christ is the one who came and He fulfilled the second word and all ten of the ten words in order that we could be made right with God. We'll celebrate that together here this morning. Father, as we give attention as we think through the ramifications of the second word to us. Lord, I pray that it would would convict us of our violation of it and that it would encourage us with Christ's keeping of it and then motivate us to strive to keep it ourselves, to strive motivated in love for Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.